this day of worship and study of God's Word. You know, I pretty much like to, I pretty much do, uh, preach through texts of the Bible, through passages. As a matter of fact, next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, we'll start a, a study and a, a series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord's words out of Matthew's Gospel, which are kind of his, his ultimate sermon, if you will, and one that's misunderstood by far too many people. And so we'll take that, and over the next several months, we will unfold the Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing. We've just finished a series on worship. It's rare that I, I like to get out. I just don't like to get out of series or out of expositions in order to, to do something, except once a year. And once a year, I really do like for us to focus our attention upon the sanctity of life, to talk about life, not just in the narrow scope of abortion, although that is the, uh, what brings this about every year, the January 22nd anniversary of Roe v. Wade from 1973, but, but to really think about life in its broader context and the commands of Scripture to respect life and love life and even choose life in so many ways. Behind me, you see a picture there on the screen that... I want to use just to kind of give a little bit of a, a visual of where we have come since 1973, since January the 22nd. That is uh, something that the, the, uh, the uh, Mississippi Baptist Convention erected right across the street from the Capitol building in Jackson, Mississippi, just about a month and a half ago in preparation for uh, the 22nd of January and the, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And in that, it's, it's got not, kind of hard to see, but I think you get some perspective when I tell you what it is. Those are pennies in there. And there's a penny in there for every single abortion since 1973, legalized abortion. There are 50 million pennies in that. Uh, they're still pouring them in, you can see there. 50 million, that's $500,000. So I guess they could be robbed real easily for a great sum of money. I guess it's a little bit to truck it off probably. But, but five, 50 million lives that have been taken in the womb since 1973. I guess another way to look at it is this next slide, and the only two slides I'm going to show you today, but I wanted you to see this, that roughly uh, since Roe v. Wade in 1973, the number of abortions done in the U.S. roughly equals... Uh, the population of the following states. Now, how many states do we have? 50. Okay, good. I wanted to be sure you knew that. A little civics question here. Those are 25 states. Now, I think you take 50 and subtract 25, you come out with half of them, right? So half the states uh, have, have, uh, would be uh, the, the equal to the population of 25 of our states. Put Kentucky there at the top just because I thought that would be a good place to start. Uh, that many abortions have been performed since 1973. Well, you might say, why even talk about this topic? Why, why make this an issue? Why deal with it from a pulpit on a Sunday morning in a time of worship? Well, the main things I'm talking about is because of the sanctity of life, because of the commands in Scripture to respect life and love life and choose life. You know, the, the passage that Scott read earlier uh, in the time of worship in uh, Psalm 139 talks about how God has formed us and knitted us and prepared us and given us life, even in our mother's womb. Jeremiah said, or was told by God, before you were even conceived, I had chosen you for the task which you're going to do. Life is not just some kind of tangible, 
born, die, and, and everything in between is okay. But life is something that to God is very precious from the time it is conceived in the womb until the time of natural death or however death comes in this life. The title of the sermon this morning is, Is Our Culture Committing Suicide? Now, that may sound strange. That's a strange title. But I, I kind of stole that, if you will, from, uh, and changed it a little bit from an article this past week that Chuck Colson wrote. I, I'm a real admirer of Chuck Colson. And he had written a, an article entitled, The March of Death, A Culture Commits Suicide. He said, those who have embraced the culture of death had much to celebrate during 2008. By culture of death, I'm referring to those movements which would advance euthanasia, assisted suicide, abortion, fetal experimentation, and even population control. Take a quick look at the year and you'll see what I mean. In the United States, voters in Washington State approved the grotesquely named Death with Dignity Act, which will allow physicians to prescribe lethal doses of drugs to their terminally ill patients. Washington joins Oregon as the only other state at least for now, that have legalized assisted suicide. and Two down and 48 to go. You know, I, I don't often quote Dr. House from the TV show in, uh, uh, in my sermons, but I, I was flipping the other day on one of those house marathons I ran across on Saturday. And I was, I think it was Saturday before last, and I was flipping around. And he had a patient about to die, and one of the people said to Dr. House, he said, why don't we just let her die with dignity? And House looked at her, and, and House is not a, doesn't come across a Christian on the show at all, but he looked at the, at the nurse or the aide or the other doctor or whatever that said that and said, die with dignity? There's no such thing as dying with dignity. You live with dignity. Life is dignified. Death is grotesque under the best of circumstances. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful truth being presented by a totally secular show and a secular idea. So, you know, this idea of death with dignity act is kind of a foolish thing. And sort of, Coulson went on and said, of course there are other significant news other than Washington. In D.C., the new administration began to set up shop this week in the White House, an administration that promised to, during the campaign to enact the Freedom of Choice Act, or FOCA, F-O-C-A, which in essence will eliminate all, most, if not all, restrictions on abortion which will take away things like parental notification, which will take away things like a ban on partial birth abortion, which is, I'm not going to describe for you this morning because it's too grotesque and too sickening to even describe, but which allows babies to be murdered literally as they're exiting the birth canal and call it abortion. But that's right in line with much of what our culture believes in. I mean, you've got men like Peter Singer at Princeton University, an, quote, ethicist, who says that, you know, really newborn children should not be considered humans. They should be given a period of time, maybe 30 days, maybe six months, whereby they're still considered embryos, and until they reach that point, if a parent decides, well, you know, this child is too much trouble, this child is not what I wanted, for any reason at all, could just be eliminated. That's what Peter Singer advocates. Now, when I first read that 20 years ago in the writings of Peter Singer, I thought, that's the most ridiculous thing. That will be laughed right off the face of America. Today, about 20% of the population believes that may not be such a bad idea. We are a church. We are, we are a church. We are a culture, not a church, I don't think, but we are a culture that has embraced death. We are a culture that 
20 some odd years ago, 30, actually 30 years ago, when, when Roe v. Wade was, was passed or, or ruled on by the Supreme Court, when that, that fiat right was found, uh, most people were saying, well, it's just this one little specific, you know, uh, first trimester, all this kind of stuff. It's very small, and, and it's protecting from rape and incest and, and other things and all. Nobody was thinking, well, this could explode into something far greater, except one of my heroes, Francis Schaeffer, who basically said, you know, what we have here is a slippery slope that within the next years it will go from this to this to this until finally life will be absolutely obliterated. It'll be viewed as absolutely no value whatsoever. Well, the scripture indicates that God takes a very intimate part in all of life. As a matter of fact, in addition to Psalm 139, I love what their text is this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy. 30th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Verse 15. These words are written there, quoting God. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in His ways and keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply and that your, the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not long, uh, you will not Prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. God says, listen, I want you to understand that life is associated with blessing. Death is associated with curse. It's associated with the original curse. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there living in absolute paradise, living in absolute perfection of environment and, and everything they needed and everything their hearts could ever desire, and God said, listen, there's only one thing you can't eat of, and that is the, the, tru the, the tree of the knowledge of, of truth. And, and, and if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And, and they couldn't take it. You know, Satan came along, tempted, you know, the story and said, did God really say you can't eat of any of this fruit? And Adam or Eve said, no, no, just this one tree. And, and why did God say that? Well, God said, we eat of it, we'll die. And, and Satan said, die? Don't you know God just doesn't want you to be like him? Why, if you eat of that tree, you will be just like him. And they ate of it. And death entered in at that moment. They were thrown out of the garden. They had to till their work hard by the sweat of their brow to eat. And, and they, they then progressed toward physical death. 
And apart from an atonement being made, there would always be not only physical death, but spiritual death involved in that process. You see, life is important in the eyes of God. God has called us as a church, not only Grace Baptist Church, but the church across this land. God has called us to stand for life. I remember back in the 80s when I was pastoring in Atlanta, how the churches were involved in, in crying out for, for justice, crying out for righteousness, crying out for life to be uh, lifted up and, and respected and honored. And, I mean, there were, the churches were all about that. I remember standing on a sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic as a pastor back in 1986 or 87 and, and just praying, not blocking, not protesting, not doing anything else, just praying and asking God to give wisdom to those young ladies who were going in there and, and to break the hearts of those who were working in that clinic. And I, I remember praying there and a wide sidewalk, at least this wide, and just standing on the edge of it with plenty of room to go by and having the police come and say, you can't do that here. I can't do what? You, you can't pray here. What do you mean I can't pray here? This is a public sidewalk. It's, a, it's the quintessential free access area. Sure, I can pray here. No, not in front of this clinic. You can't pray. It's amazing that several years ago, a guy that I respect greatly by the name of Wesley J. Smith, he's a lawyer and an ethicist, he wrote a book entitled The Culture of Death. If you read that book today, you, you have to look at it kind of strangely because he talks about this is where we're headed. This is what is coming. There's going to come a time when people will, will have other people deciding whether they have quality of life or whether they ought to be allowed to live or, or whether they ought to be able to, to be given nourishment uh, and just water or whether they'll be thirsted to death and starved to death because they're deemed not worthy of living or not having a quality of life. Wesley Smith said that day is coming. You read it now and you say, well, what do you mean it's coming? It's already here. The, the, the book is dated because those things have already begun to happen. Some people say, well, Bill, you don't understand. We, we, we can't speak out against things like abortion and euthanasia because those have become the law of the land. They're the law. And so if they're the law, they're what we have to abide by. Do I have to tell you that just because something's legal does not necessarily mean it's right? You know, I'll never forget sitting in a class of applied theology back in, goodness, back in the early 80s with R.C. Sproul and applied theology basically was just an ethics class. It's taking theology and theological truths and applying it to life. And for two weeks, for seven hours a day, we sat in that class and bannered back and forth the different issues. And you know how sometimes in a class one thing will stick in your mind? You may forget 90% of what's in the class, but there's always one thing that just kind of resonates with you and kind of sticks there. I'll never forget one day R.C. saying this. He said, we are quickly moving from a culture of ethics to a culture of morals. And I thought, what's wrong with that? I mean, we're, we ought to be moral people, shouldn't we? And, and he went on to explain, yes, but the, th the problem is that ethics are absolute. Ethics are founded on some foundation. Ethics are found on something that, that is true and good and right. And so ethics are, are what ought to be, what should be, how people ought to behave. Morals, on the other hand, are kind of determined by statistical analysis, what the majority of the people do. So in our culture, there's a lot of things that are considered moral now. They're considered acceptable now 
because they're not based on an ethical foundation. They're just based on what the majority of people want to do. And abortion is one of those things. Well, it's a, it's a moral thing because it's a legal thing, and it's a legal thing because the people want it to be, and, and there's a majority who think it's right, and so the church just kind of throws up its hands and says, well, we can't do anything about it. God says here in Deuteronomy 30, He says, listen, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. I've commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in His ways and keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. I mean, God's pretty clear here. That life brings prosperity. Death brings adversity. Life is chosen when you love the Lord your God, when you walk in His ways, when you keep His commandments, when you follow His statutes, when you listen to His judgments. All of those things are the things that are wrapped up and, and encompassed in the Word of God, in the Scripture. He says, listen, when you, when you obey the Lord your God, when you love the Lord your God, it, it's like I read for the call to worship this morning. Jesus said, I am the true vine, you are the branches. As long as you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. As long as you abide in me, there, there will be a fruitfulness. And, but, but if you're cut off, if you stop abiding, the fruit dries up, you die. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength we're told in Scripture, and understand that our walking with Him means submitting to Him. Submitting to His Word. Submitting to His truth. Truth. Not speculation. Not suggestions. You know, that's how we treat his word sometimes. Well, God's given us some suggestions here, and it's my, you know, I can just decide to throw them off or I can accept them, but it doesn't matter. Just God's given me these suggestions. God never called them suggestions. God called them law. God called them commandments. God called them precepts. God called them principles. But he never called them suggestions. Life is an important Thing. I love the way God says it here in verse 19. Look at that with me. In verse 19, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Why would God say, I call before you today heaven and earth as witnesses? Well, you see, the, the normal way of establishing a covenant in that day, the normal way of bringing in witnesses was you establish this covenant by saying, with God as my witness. Or in the pagan areas, they would say, with these gods as my witness. And they would stretch it out, you know, and expand it out to all sorts of gods. But to, to form a covenant, there was always this calling on the gods to be a witness to it. Well, when God makes a covenant, there is no greater God that he can call on. There, there is nobody he can say, well, with, with Zeus as my witness, because Zeus is a false god. So God simply says to these covenant people, these people, he's establishing a living covenant, a life covenant with. He says, heaven and earth is my 
is my witnesses. And I come before you today and I say choose life. You see, I think the church has become too complacent in the 21st century. I think the church has come to a point where we say, well, things are bad and they're just getting worse and, you know, we know the Lord's coming again and so we're just going to sit back and wait and, and just wait and let it happen and, and maybe, maybe we can somehow mysteriously be raptured out of here and we won't have to face the really bad part, which, by the way, I don't think Scripture gives us a whole lot of encouragement that that's going to happen personally. I, I think it's say, you know, there's, there's too many of us that say, well, you know, we're just... We're just going to isolate ourselves and we're going to just be in the church and we're not going to worry about culture. Listen, when we get in the Sermon on the Mount starting next week, you're going to find that one of the first things Jesus says is, listen, if you are my disciple, you are to be salt and you are to be light in the culture. You're to make a difference out there. You're to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. You're to look at light and say, that is light, that is truth. You're to look at darkness and say, that is darkness, that is a lie. That is a falsehood, that is an error. That's our call as disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not called just to sit back and say, oh, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to sing, my chains are gone, and I'm going to sing, great is the Lord Almighty, and I'm going to sing all these things. And then I'm going to walk out those doors and I'm going to say, man, I can't wait till next week to come back where I can really make an impact and sing, listen to a sermon. Wow, that's what my Christianity is all about. Let's go to church, let's settle in, and that's it. Listen, folks, that's just the equipping point. That's just the strengthening point where we are to come together, be taught the Word of God, worship the living God, exalt Him and, and lift Him up and reflect back His glory. But we do that to be strengthened. We do that to be encouraged. We do that that we might walk in His ways and walk in His truth. This is not the end all. We're called to make a difference. To be salt and light. To be li uh, salt and and light to the world, to be a light that's set on a hill that exposes darkness. You know, that's the purpose of light, is to expose darkness. When you go home tonight, you're going to walk in your house, and probably you've turned out all the lights as you left, and you come back in, it's after dark, and there's darkness. And, and you're, I hope you're not going to just say, you know, I'm going to just stumble around and find my way here, you know, and... See if I can get to my bedroom and, and see if I can find something to eat. You're going to go in, you're going to say, boy, this darkness is not good. Oh, this darkness is overpowering. This darkness is it's just not good. So I'm going to walk over to the wall. Does that work? Yeah. And I'm going to turn on a light. I thought that was a dead switch. I'm going to walk over the wall and turn on a light. And immediately there's going to be a, an existence of light. And in the existence of light, darkness vanishes. Because see, darkness is not really anything. Darkness is really nothing. Darkness is just the absence of light. And when light comes on, when light, is expo when light exposes, it exposes everything. That's what we as Christians are called to be. We're called to be light that exposes darkness, that va makes darkness vanish in our culture, in our community, and in our world. Wow. Never thought about that. Never thought that God didn't just save me to, so I can go to church. God didn't just save me so I can 
learn those great songs. God didn't just save me so I can go hear Bill preach every Sunday. Well, if that's all he saved you for, you're in a world of hurt. He saved you to be light. He saved you to be salt, a preserving agent in a culture that is dying. Listen, I hope you're on your face before God every day praying for our new president. I hope you're on your face praying that God will give him wisdom and God will turn his heart toward life, not death. I, I mean, the promise of the, uh, of the uh, Freedom of Choice Act sounds so not innocuous, doesn't it? Just sounds so innocent. Everybody, well, God even says here, there's a choice. Choose life. Choice is a good thing, we think. Freedom of Choice Act will literally open the doors to probably another half a million to a million abortions a year. And 13-year-old girls who find themselves in situations they, shouldn't have, they should have made another choice prior to that will find themselves being shielded and hidden from the people who love them the most, their parents. Because government says, well, parents may not understand. We understand. You know, more big brother, more big government, more... It's horrific. It's ridiculous. And the church is just kind of sitting there smiling. Now, I really believe that, you know, Augustine, the father, one of the great church fathers, Augustine said, you know, uh, there's the city of God and there's the city of man. When we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, the city of man, the city of God, and they're different. And the city of God is where Christ reigns in this church, among his people. But the city of God is to have an impact on the city of man. And if we don't, we abdicate the very thing for which God has called us. I know that there are tough decisions that have to be made. I could tell you personal stories of some with people I've counseled with and, and people that I've known and, and you know, just... Tough decisions. But I can also tell you a thousand stories, and you know them, where people went against the counsel of doctors and against the counsel of family and against the counsel of others and chose life because they wanted to be obedient to God more than obedient to man. I take, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy saw it this week, right here in Somerset, Kentucky. You see it in Orlando, and you see it in Virginia Beach a lot. I never, I never know, I'd see, but I saw it in Somerset this past week, a bumper sticker. You know how I love bumper stickers anyway. I hate them. But this bumper sticker was the one that drives me the craziest. I, I rarely have this desire to crash into the back of a car, but <laughs> this one does it to me. It's the one that says, if you're against abortion... Don't have one. I'm going to get one made for my car. If you're against murder, then don't kill anybody. You know, if, you know, why should the government regulate murder? Why should it take away my right to kill you if you make me mad? Why should the government legislate morality to say, I can't go to your bank tomorrow and, and withdraw all your money and put it in my account? That's stealing. But, but that's morality. Why should the government be able to say, no, no, no. So if you, don't want, if you don't want 
If you don't theft, just don't steal. But don't infringe upon my right to steal your money or to shoot you if that's what I just feel like doing. And I think it'll make my life better and happier and more peaceful. See how ludicrous that is? I love the, one of our young people uh, wrote a poem. I'm not much of a poet, uh, and I'm not much at interpreting poetry in the right vein in reading it, I'm sure. But I, she thought I wasn't even going to read it. She thought I was going to print it somewhere, but I'm going to read it this morning. I, I love this. This is, this is beautiful. It's one of our, our young people. She said I couldn't use her name, so Kayla won't tell anybody. Um, listen to this. It's wisdom. Can you hear my voice? In the wind, a mere breath. Not a name, but a choice. And I was chosen for death. Growing and changing, they said, it's not yet alive. Forming light, turned to night. In the womb, I was inside. No chance to see, no chance to breathe, no chance to take my heart and sing. No chance to shout, no chance to cry, no chance to scream, to laugh, to sigh. I merely had the chance to die, not worth the birth or the life to buy. Can you hear my voice? I'm God's very own. Before the coming of your choice, I was still always known. He knitted me and molded me and thought of me, unfolded me. Psalm 139, knew in and out the whole of me before the, quote, accident came to be. Can you hear my voice? Who could I have been without your choice? If I had, a ch if I had the chance to begin a child, a student, a sibling, a friend, the messenger of the messenger God chose to send, more than just a breath in the wind, a teacher, a preacher, a soldier for Christ, I guess we'll never know. You paid the price. Can you hear my call? I was life to be lived, instead killed, murdered, my future hid. I am life. Do not remain blind. From the beginning, God kept me in His mind. Do you hear me? I'm shouting, in all, but it all fades in the distance. In your mind, you're still doubting my life or existence. My scream can't be heard. I have no way to call. My life has been blurred from the start of it all. I ask, can you hear me? I guess you never will. God brought life to me, but you chose to kill. You see, I really pray that the church will arise again and speak for life. Yesterday I watched... Torah, 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 at least part of it. I left it going on TV so I could come back. I just love the last scene. 
when the commander of the Japanese forces, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the cowardly attack, they're ready to launch forth to San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and conquer America. And his comment is, I fear that all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant. I think the church is asleep today. But I pray that in the days to come, that giant will be awakened. A giant for truth. A giant that's vigilant for the truth of Almighty God. A giant that says we will stand on God's word, on God's truth, not on cultural morals, not on cultural mores, not on cultural statistical analysis, but on the truth of Almighty God. I pray that 2009, the church will say, it's time we do what we're called to do. Not play politics. This is not a political issue. This is not a political matter. When I speak about praying for President-elect Obama to make right decisions and have wisdom in this area about this Freedom of Choice Act, I'm not saying, oh, he's a Democrat. and I can't be for him. It's not, it's not a matter of politics. It's a matter of truth. It's a matter of life. And I pray the church will awake and choose life again. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we need for you to speak by your Holy Spirit, through your word, clearly to the church. Not just Grace Baptist, but the church across this land. We need, O oh Lord, to hear. We need to hear the call again to be salt and light. We need to hear the call again, Lord, that we are here to expose the darkness. Father, help us. Help us to be obedient. Help us to walk in your truth. Help us to walk in your ways. Help us, Lord, to abide in you as a vine. We are the branches. Oh, dear God, awaken your sleeping giant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.